from Orlando is uh, is with us uh, for this uh, retreat. We met uh, Jill in Orlando back in May at the International Convention, and she was the kind of the master of ceremonies for the all of the big events at the uh, at the Orlando Convention. So we were. We said after that, I said, "Hey, we need, we need to get her up to Birmingham to to talk to us about her her story, which I'll let her tell. I won't uh, spill the beans." And uh, so, and she was gracious in accepting our invitation, and it is our pleasure to have Jill with us today. Jill, I turn it over. speakers who I don't get nervous ahead of time. Uh, you know, people often ask, like, oh, how are you feeling? I'm like, I'm good, fine. Um, but right before I come up, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to die, you know. So, But I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die today, I don't think. And it's good to be here. I so appreciate the generosity of the Birmingham Fellowship. Um... I feel like even though um, you asked me to come here and give something to you, that really it's been me receiving, excuse me, receiving so much in the way of your generosity and your love that um, I'm so moved by it because I mentioned last night in my share that um, Starting with uh, moving in August, which many of the men from my fellowship who helped me move are here, and I'm so grateful to them, but it started this upheaval. Well, really, it goes back to (laughs) December, but I don't want to give away my story too much. Um, This upheaval, and then we had the, I'm a teacher, and so the school year started, and then we had the hurricane, and then my mother broke her hip, and then she broke her ribs, and it's just been this, like, just chaos, really, uh, chaos in my life. And this retreat was something that I was like, if I could just get to the retreat. You know, it was that mark of, um, that'll be the chance for me to catch my breath. So you have no idea, like, what a, what a gift this is for me, uh, in my life, in my recovery. So I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Oh, I just need to get my phone. I take notes on my phone. I'm not um, well. I probably am obsessed with the technology, particularly since it has a picture of my dog on the front, and I'm totally willing to reveal my obsession with her to you. Um, but um, I do have some notes here in case I get lost. Uh, when I was young in recovery and a lot more egotistical, believe it or not, than I am now, um, I, I got up at a podium and. You know, I thought I had this amazing story to share with people that need, really needed to hear it. <laughs> and, uh, and I choked big time. I got up at the podium and I choked. I just, like, swallowed my tongue. I couldn't speak. So I've learned, like, in most experiences in recovery that um, uh, I can learn from those experiences. And one of the things I did was take a class on public speaking. It was part of the requirements of my coursework anyway. And and also take notes. So 
even though I very much am relying on God's ultimate authority here, on what I need to say, and perhaps what you need to hear, um, I do have some notes here, which um, I'll probably look at and go, I have no idea what that means. (laughs) they're, They're fragmented, and I'm like... Wait, what? Chaotic childhood? What, what, what did I mean by that? So, let's see how that goes. <sighs> Where to start? Where to start? Um, so, uh, I've been in recovery altogether. It's, um, I just celebrated 29 years in Alcoholics Anonymous on August 8th, 9th. Um, my sobriety date in August in AA is eight eight eighty eight, which is super cool. And um, uh, I'm thinking also part of my story of like resetting my um, my uh, SAA date. And so I was like, you know what? I, I, there's a, a bit of ambiguity around it. So I'm like, I might just line them up because it's such a great date. It's so easy to remember, right? Eight eight eighty eight. And uh, it was the night the lights went on in Wrigley Field. Um, I was living in Chicago, and, uh, and I feel like it's so symbolic that it was the night that the light uh, began to shine. Sorry, i got to get my tissues. In my own life, it had been uh, very dark in my world. So, to begin with... Um, I'm not from the South. Probably comes as a shock to you. Um, I am from uh, the Northeast. I was born in New York. Another shock probably to many of you. I was born in uh, Staten Island, New York, um, which I hear is now quite the meth capital, right? Which is, yes. Um, Which is sad, but... um, I moved to Connecticut. Uh, It was already starting to go downhill, so my parents um, swooped us out of there and and brought us to Connecticut, and I grew up primarily there. Um, But I think some of the interesting things about growing up in New York is um, that uh, being an Irish Catholic was very much a culture in those days, and uh, I went to Catholic school, and I went to church every Sunday, and... um, and uh, the church and the school, of course, were, um, were virtually the same. And uh, we had a cafeteria um, in my school that had a, a long, I'm sure it probably wasn't this big, but I think of it as this big, a long wall, which was an accordion wall, you know, the kind that you can move to the side. And on Saturdays, we would go there and my brothers would play basketball. I'm the youngest of five kids. And they would pull that accordion door aside and there was a full-on bar in there. I mean, built-in keg pools, stools, unit right in the middle of my elementary school cafeteria. Need I say more? I mean, really, I was bellying up to the bar when I was in elementary school, and I just remember being enamored with those little umbrella toothpick things. You know, like, who invented those? Sheer genius. I mean, forget the math textbook. Forget all that. Forget that one sentence I had of homework a week that I couldn't manage to knock out. I was just like, this is amazing. Um, And I would have my ginger ale with my dad, and that's how we bonded. 
Um, and uh, and all of our basements had bars, right? Fully stocked bars. And as a kid, while you guys were, I don't know, what were you guys like playing outdoors or something? Um, we were playing bar. Yeah, we were playing bar. My grandparents had um, an old pink refrigerator in their basement. And uh, I just remember distinctly battling with that handle. It's worth the fight, though. And uh, they would have all this Pathmark, that was their Piggly Wiggly. Um, soda of all different kinds, right? Um, black cherry and lemon lime and all of that. And we would mix the soda at the bar. And my grandfather had all his stirs, and in those days the stirs were crystal. Um, and we would lick the stirs. <laughs> we were licking alcohol off of these um, regular fixtures of our childhood. He even had like this strobe light in the corner. Like my grandparents, what are they doing down there? Like having a disco? I don't know. Like they were showing slideshows from their trips, but they had this funky light down there. Um, and they had all that great like modern mid-century furniture down there, that plastic furniture. And, um, and that was like a large part of my childhood. So again, yeah, not surprising that um, my coping skills were, um, you know, to belly up to the bar. Um, so how how does that um, connect with um, sex addiction? Well, um, so um, as the youngest of, of five kids, um, my dad was like first generation college, and uh, he was up and coming, an up and coming executive. Um, and uh, my mom was very young. She was 19 when she got married and um, learned that she was adopted the night of her wedding. Uh, and um, so, right, so that's the kind of, like, communication. Uh, she, of course, lost her birth parents and then lost her father when she was eight, her adopted father when she was eight, um, and then, you know, was, was raised by a single mom when there wasn't even a term for that. Um, and so essentially raised herself um, and then started raising five kids um, right out of the gate. And uh, so it was chaos. That's what that note means. Chaotic childhood. It was absolute pandemonium. Um, there was no, um, there was no consistency. Um, and the rule, though uh, authoritarian, uh, was also tremendously loose. Uh, at times. Um, so there was really, there were no real healthy boundaries. Um, she was just way in over her head. Um, and my dad was working hard to build his career. Um, and so in, in large part, we were kind of on our own raising each other. And um, we were all in a row, so I'm the youngest, and so my oldest brother, she tried to have six kids, but so my oldest brother is um, just about six years older than me, not quite. Um, and his name is Jack. Yeah, my name's Jill. And, and just, to get, just to give you a little insight into that, I was telling Jack that um, I don't think my mother really realized she was doing that, which is, is another indication of what was going on in the home. Um, and I ask her even today, and she just laughs. I'm like, it's not funny. Because <laughs> my brother's name is John, John William, but he was six years older, right? So they'd been calling him Jack for six years. This wasn't a surprise, 
right? And then I'm born and they just name me Jill. That's it, Jill, just Jill. No middle name, nothing. No Jillian, it's just Jill. So whenever, and the first thing most people do say to me is, oh, where's Jack? I'm like, he's in South Florida. Um, do you have a brother named Jack? Yes, I do, actually. Yeah. So, yeah, it's funny. Um, and that's, you know, that's another glimpse into my childhood, right? It's that sort of, like, careless, goofy um, passivity of it all. Um, and um, so, uh, so my instructors were my siblings, and, um, and then I came across my dad's pornography. Um, and that was another one of my instructors. And then um, I had the Catholic Church on the one hand, right? And they were my very much a force in my life. And the force of that was um, that, uh, you know, on the one side I have this very strict, chaste view, um, and I'm growing up in the 60s and 70s, right? So it's boys are still very much different, right? In fact, my brothers were not allowed on the second floor of our house, uh, where, the, where our rooms were. They had to, like, just barely touch the second floor to get to the third floor steps. Um, we were very much, like, kept separate in that sense, and we were, the girls were taught to cover up, um, and the boys were taught to stay away from us and treat us with kid gloves. Um, and so there was this, this distinction, this separateness. Um, but also then we all, you know, played together, sort of, and, um, and so by the time I came across the pornography, it was such a twist, I think, in my thinking. Um, and what I was mesmerized with were um, the stories um, in there. And so I read these highly sexual stories of power relationships. Um, and so you can just see this like young adolescence brain just twisting up right about how to relate to men and how to gain power in a world where I felt so unprepared right to exist you know even in the simplest I think about this now like that's not a joke when I was in first grade my homework was to write one sentence per week and I couldn't do it. I did not have the kind of guidance and stability that I needed, right, to be attentive to just the normal every day, right? And yet at the same time, we had this lovely home and, um, you know, three meals a day for the most part, um, and for the most part, clean clothes. Um, so, um, so yeah, I came across that, and um, and then uh, you know, alcohol soon follows. So you just have this perfect cocktail of um, of promiscuity and drunkenness, um, and that's how I lived for um, probably starting around the time I was fourteen uh, until I was twenty-one. Um, and in the midst of that, my parents divorced, so that was another terrible twist um, in my psyche because all of that Catholicism and 
um, foundational belief stuff of how people are supposed to behave and um, and my dad had had an affair and it was like really whoa just mind-blowing stuff for a kid who really was very much a prude when sober you know just a scared trying to fit in prude just you know cover up even in like PE I couldn't get undressed in front of the other girls like I just was terrified you know but with with alcohol in the mix I could um, be that something person that was free um, and uh, and use those you know sexual wiles to uh, get attention and feel feel powerful so I think the message I came away with ultimately was um, act like you got it act like you got it right because in my family if you didn't have it you were gonna get it that was really the takeaway it was a very um, it was a very threatening environment um, there was um, there was physical abuse but I would say more than the physical was the emotional threat on a regular basis it was normal for my mother to threaten to kill me about a half a dozen times a day and that may seem like for some of you um, oh yeah that happens like every now and then I'll pull my students there there has to be a context for this but you know I'll be like any of your parents like threaten to kill you like if you don't get down here right now I'm gonna kill you some of you that's normal right but you know what that's not normal it's not normal to feel like your life is not valuable on a regular basis and then to have the other threat which was the spiritual threat which is God will get you on a regular basis God's gonna get you for that God's gonna get you for that and that was verbal that wasn't like inferred on my part you know that was verbalized on a regular basis um, so I want to add that in because um, not because I, I want to deliver some sort of like psychoanalysis of my childhood story but because it really um, it really predicts you know uh, and explains a lot of the behavior uh, later which was which was that I developed this persona of you know I'm tough I got this I don't need you um, and sadly that was kind of perpetuated in AA for me that was my experience that is not everybody's experience but that was my experience because I didn't know I had this other little addiction <laughs> working on the side you know for every bit of progress I was making in AA it was undermining right um, that progress um, so I um, you know I did some of the normal things that kids do you know I graduated from high school barely um, I went off to college um, but I drank my way through Florida State University and, le and left right a lot of people did 
Um, but believe it or not, I have since learned that a lot of people actually go there to study. I did not know that at the time. Um, and I left before they asked me to. And they were coming close to that. I actually had to sign a contract that I would attend college algebra on the fifth time that I scheduled it. Um, so I left, but I didn't leave. I left after I had already, I had been in car accidents. I had um, lost most of the vision in my left eye. I've had 300 stitches in my face. Um, just craziness, right, from drinking. Um, and um, as I said, my parents had divorced, and so I went to live with my father, who um, his company moved us to Florida my senior year, and then it moved him uh, up to Michigan uh, once my parents divorced. So I went up there because it was probably the hot weather, you know, that was causing a lot of these problems. So I went to Michigan, and... Uh, and believe it or not, like after a few weeks or so, those problems caught up to me. Um, I found a few people to join me down at the... Uh, um, so I don't want to tell my drinking story, but I think it's funny how the bars in Michigan have the worst names. Like, um, I drank at bars called the, the, the Gangplank. <laughs> These are the three bars I drank at. The Gangplank. Um, this is really stretching my memory. The Doghouse. The Gangplank, the Doghouse, and um, the Frog Pond, I think. And that was pretty much what it was like. I mean, that really accurately depicts those last days of drinking. Um, and then I found um, a path to Chicago, and I ended up having my last drink in Chicago, which is why I have that nice little symbol of the night the lights went on at Wrigley Field. I was bartending in Chicago. Um, I wasn't even old enough to drink. <laughs> and I was bartending. Um, I did turn 21, though, uh, right before I got sober. And uh, and um, so, so this is really where there's this shift, right? So I'm not drinking anymore, and I think that I've got this answer, right? Um, it's what I'd been praying for, and I had a relationship with God in the sense that um, I, I kept journals, and um, I knew there was a God. I believed in God. I was desperate for a connection with God. I remember as a kid, we used to put on these nativity scenes every year um, in my uh, neighborhood. We had this really interesting neighborhood uh, in Connecticut, and the whole neighborhood would get together. And I remember we would do the we would do the uh, nativity, the story, and like there was something in me that wanted to be moved by that, you know? But I couldn't connect. I didn't understand why it was just a story, you know? But there was always that something in me. And that, that is always my challenge. It is always that challenge of bridging that gap between this I got it. I know everything. You can't touch me. I won't let you hurt me. To that vulnerable, God, just let me find that God in me. You know, instead of living in this story out here, this story that I've created 
for myself is always to find that um, connection with God. That is the place where I find um, what I think of as like my true nature. So this recovery journey is all about that, just tearing down those walls. Um, and it is a work, right? <laughs> like it is a challenge. I mean, I am a monolith at times. Like I can't get to it sometimes. Um, so in recovery, you know, I found um, what I thought was the answer. You know, if I just stop drinking, everything will come together. I will do what you tell me to do. I will do it all. And I did. I went to treatment. I got the sponsor. I worked the steps. Um, I read that book with the 1935 dictionary, you know, defining things. I learned how to be a student. Um, I went to meetings, you know, every day of the week, sometimes more than once a day. Um, I was like the dragnet of sobriety. I was obnoxious, <laughs> right? I was one of those big book thumpers that, you know, is just like, well, what step are you on? You shouldn't feel sad. There's a step for that. <laughs> you know, like it was, it was bad, but it was, um, you know, it was a phase. It was a phase. Um, and uh, it was necessary, you know, it was, it was a necessary uh, part of my journey, I think. Um, and, um, and then I got lonely. And I quite literally looked around. I had dated a little bit, um, but I had a friend at the time, a man who I spent a lot of time with in groups, and I knew that he liked me, and I decided that I would like him. Um, because he, uh, someone who meant well in AA, I love this, when you, you know, in the, in the um, four step in the AA, it does have the sexual inventory, right? And, um, and I think uh, whoever was um, guiding me at the time meant well. They had me make a list of all the things I wanted in a man. That is not a good idea for a sex addict. That is, I think that is wrong. I mean, maybe with some time and some guidance on what that actually means. So I had this checklist, um, nothing about my behavior or how I should act, you know, which is really what the sexual ideal should be, you know. Um, so I looked and he met a lot of the checklist requirements and, um, and I uh, decided to uh, like him. And um, I mean, what time am I speaking until? All day, just keep going. All right. Get comfortable, people. Uh, and sadly, like I don't know that I like I wasn't conscious of that. I would say I was subconscious of it, you know, because I literally got out the list and looked, and I was like, well, his eyes aren't blue, but you know, we can work with that. Um, and <laughs> and uh, I married him, and. Um, <sighs> You know, I knew there was something wrong, but I was 20, 
three when I started dating him. I was, you know, maybe two years sober, if that. Um, and um, but I didn't know enough about my own self to know that the feelings I were ha- I was having were. Um, like guidance that that was intuition I thought it was fear people were telling me good well-meaning members of um, 12-step recovery were like it's a fear of intimacy which is true (laughs) but not true right Um, so um, I had a lot of red flags um, but I married him and um, even, oh my God, it was so bad. It was so bad from the get-go. I am not a good actor. Like, I um, wear everything on my face, you know? And I believe that God has given me um, such a gift that is very painful at times, which is that I don't, I just don't fake well, you know? Like, I just, I woke up on the morning, uh, which should have been my honeymoon, and I was like, oh my God. God, what have I done? But then it was all this this addict stuff that I didn't know pushing through going, no, 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 you're just you're just afraid. You're just afraid it's that intimacy thing, you know, you'll get past it because here I am sober, I'm that prudish like Catholic girl, right? So I don't know how to behave in relationship with someone. So I think it's all that stuff. Um and I'm you know, simultaneously, like living with this man and writing in my journal about how, um, like, I really, I want to kill myself. I want out of this relationship so badly that I want to kill myself. Um, so instead, I got pregnant. Good plan. Um, and uh, and I had a son, and um, he's 24 today. Um, I think that that is just proof that no matter what messes we make God makes good God makes good like every dumb ass decision I have ever made there is a light there is a silver lining that is beautiful like even even like small little me you know, has that experience, and we see it in the world, right, with all the tragedy that occurs, you see, like, people doing amazing things in spite of it. And so Kyle is like a light, he's the light of a dark, dark decision of mine um, to marry, and um, his father, wasn't able to stay sober so um, I was able to get out of that relationship on that um, message I guess you know that he couldn't stay sober we had started some counseling and I felt like maybe there was something to salvage there but he couldn't stay sober um, long enough for that to um, be tested um, so I got out of that marriage, and uh, and that really kicked off the cycle of my sex addiction, is being divorced. 
And my sex addiction looks like um, serial monogamy with um, glimpses of like um, one night stands, but not so much of that because I believe that my program in Alcoholics Anonymous tempered my sex addiction because for every time that I would get into one of these relationships were, which were very much the same model as my marriage, which was I'm lonely, I'm feeling small, I'm feeling powerless and scared, I have financial insecurity, I'm raising a son on my own, oh my god, why am I alone, um, I'm not going to be able to do this. Um, oh, there's someone available who seems interested in me. Um, and that was how I went. And there was really no consideration as to um, that person's humanity. You know, it was about what I needed um, and what I could get from that person. And I, again, don't think I was conscious of that. I just felt something uncomfortable, painful, and didn't realize that I was using people to fill that. Because at the same time, I'm working this program in AA, I've got a sponsor, I'm doing service work. Um, you know, service work is so important, and yet at the same time, it is not the answer. My ex-husband was like a DCM for Alcoholics Anonymous and was out buying crack. You know, um, it's got to be like the whole thing. Like, and so many people that come into other 12-step programs like myself have other addictions that are undermining um, the fullness of recovery. I remember seeing, um, you know, those signs, you're not alone anymore, and hearing happy, joyous, and free, and I'm like, Where's mine? I'm not happy, joyous, and free. I'm miserable. Because I didn't know that I kept going through the cycle of addiction and withdrawal. And that was my life for 22 years. I was sober 22 years in Alcoholics Anonymous going through that cycle. And let me tell you something. It just about destroyed my relationship with that kid. But the miracle of recovery is that no matter how like dark and destructive addiction can be, the power of God there's no match for the power of God. Like, there's no match for the power of the miracle, the healing. So Kyle was um, 16 when I started in SAA, and we could not be in the same room together. During high school, I had the cops at my house in the morning. I had holes in my walls. My son was already using. Um, and I'm a teacher, so I go to work. And I'm with these gifted, advanced students, and I'm teaching them Aristotle. And at home, I'm physically fighting with my son. I mean, at that point, I wasn't physical, because <laughs> he was six feet tall, you know. But I abused him. 
I was physical with him at times when he was young. I emotionally abused him, um, mostly like my parents in the form of neglect. I heard someone say in a meeting once, benign neglect. I thought that was nice until you know, I really looked up the word benign. I knew cursorily what it meant. I was like, no, it's not benign, <laughs> you know. Benign is, you know, good. Benign is gentle, right? Benign is without negative effect. Um, but I greatly harmed my son, and, and while his father was deep in addiction, I was all he had. Um, and... Uh, so we, uh, when I got sober in S or abstinent in SAA, were at that place, and um, you know those well-meaning people want to tell me that I did the best I could. You did the best you could, right? And the, again, it's one of those things that's true, but not true, <laughs> right? It's not true for that little boy right who deserved something better but did I know that I was in this cycle of addiction did I know that every time he basically with his eyes told me to F off you know that I was feeling that rejection of childhood did I know that he was triggering the rage you know did I know all of that no I had absolutely no idea, but I knew it was wrong the way I reacted to him. I knew it was wrong and I would take it to my sponsors and I would take it to therapists, but I couldn't stop the cycle until I came into SAA. Until I started to do that deeper work of understanding why I was having these reactions to people and to life and why when Kyle was four and seven and 11 and 13 that I would literally stand in the threshold of his room after a night where I experienced once again that shame of being less than who I intended to be when he was born and look at him sleeping so innocently and think, how did I end up like this? Like, how did I end up as this person? You know, that was so vile. I didn't know all that, but I felt it. I felt it. It was horrible. It was horribly sober to live in that dichotomy. It was horrible the way to live. So my message to people, I think, is, especially when I go back to AA, is if you're not getting the promises right from doing this work there might be something else going on <laughs> you know there might be a food addiction there might be a gambling addiction there might be a sex addiction there might be something else going on because I know these steps work I know it um so when I started uh, in this program, I just lucked out that there was this great community in Orlando. I think it's not any mistake that my journey took me from the Northeast to Florida 
and that I, no matter how hard I tried, could not get out of Florida. <laughs> like, I kept trying to leave. Like, I'll go to Michigan and I'll live with my father and then I'm back in Florida for treatment. I'm going to move and get away from the ex-husband and everything fell through. You know, um, so I wound up in this great, as you know, SA community in Florida where there was a lot of strong women and I got thrown right into step studies, which saved my life because the reality of withdrawal and 22 years of addiction and knowing the kind of like parent I had become and the fact that I couldn't be in the same room with my own son put me in a withdrawal that had a knife at my wrist. It was brutal. I mean, I'd been passively suicide before. And by that I mean, I don't want to live, but I don't want to kill myself either. But this was the closest I ever got. Um, and I just wanted something to deaden the pain. And I didn't have anything anymore. I had quit smoking, you know, food was never all that thrilling, you know, I like it a lot more now, but that's another story. Um, so I had nothing, I couldn't use people anymore. Um, so withdrawal was something that I was not familiar that I had been in or what that was like. And um, I remember like the women were so awesome and they would say things, but I didn't understand them. I had no context for it. They're like, well, you know, you don't want to talk to your qualifier because... Um, so I should probably tell you a little bit about that, go back a little bit. So in this 22 years or the, the 15 years post-divorce, whatever it was, um, and I'm a serial monogamist and occasionally having uh, outbursts of one-night stands, I did apply the AA steps and the sex inventory and so I'd had these long periods where I wouldn't date at all um, and the problem was I just wasn't healing any of that stuff so it was just there under the surface and then I would think okay I'm cured I got this and I would get back into that same relationship um, and though it got shorter it became much more sexual so I can really see the progression of the illness in that. And then the withdrawal was so great afterwards, the regret, the remorse, um, the despair. And so I brought all that with me in here when I um, began this program, um, but luckily was also caught by um, a bunch of really strong women and put right into the steps. And um, I did like three or four step groups back to back. Man, I was desperate. I was so desperate um, and um, I got really good sponsorship but I remember that last qualifier um, a guy from AA um, that um, I dated um, I saw him at church and I was new in SAA and we had a conversation in the parking lot um, and it was um, you know one of those totally addictive like two-hour conversations you know and uh, but it didn't end it didn't lead to acting out or anything and I remember though feeling that like elation of like that simultaneous like of being with a guy and having them want me and yet I still stood my ground and and all of that and then 
two, within two hours, the crash just from talking to someone. I had never really like soberly experienced that. It was so profound that I learned that if I saw him anywhere, I could not have any contact. I could not do. I mean, and if I did, I had to be total like like robot mode. You know, I would have to like get into a place where it was like, yes, it's good to see you. Thank you, because we did service work together. Um, and then.、Um, You know,、uh, some of the relationships that I destroyed along the way,、um, particularly my son.、Um, once I got really honest、um, about that, that、um, okay, so maybe it was the best I could do, but it wasn't good enough for him. He deserved more. And the fact is that、um, I did abuse him, and. I never put him first. I heard somebody say that in a meeting that she never put her kids first, and I was like, "Yes, yes, yes, that is exactly what I did. I never put him first. Thank you." So now, even though he is 16, 17, whatever, 18 at this point, he's first. So long as it doesn't enable him and it doesn't harm me, I say yes. No matter what I'm doing. If he calls, I answer the phone. No matter what he asks for, and he doesn't ask for much, I say yes. If it's, you know, I was the type of mom who, oh, you forgot your poster? Too bad. It's due tomorrow. Now he's twenty. You want something to eat? You're hungry? I'll get it. I'll get it for you. Yeah. You need an Uber? Just I'll pay for it. It's not a problem. Whatever you need. You need me to co-sign? Need me to move you? Whatever. Yes, you matter. You're important to me.、Um, and so it took about six years into this recovery, and I got a Christmas card from him. And sure, it was missing an envelope, and. <laughs> You know, it's like a typical Kyle gift. He'll be like,、um, "So I really meant to get you something, but I forgot." And do you want to go to dinner? And that stuff used to like trigger me. I'm not good. I'm he hates me, and now I'm like, dude, no problem. You're the gift. That's it. You're it. And all I need is this. So he gave me a Christmas card, and in the Christmas card it said,、uh, "You're my one ace in the hole. You're my one ace in the hole. You, especially now," he wrote. Appropriate commas. It's nice. Somebody said <laughs> mastery of the English language, especially now. Like he knows it. Like he, I don't know that he knows knows, but he knows something's different. He knows it. He's like especially now. Are the best mom for me.
Yeah. I mean, wow. I keep that in my car, <laughs> you know, on the little side thing. I just pull it out and read it every now and then. Like, you know, lately we've had some conflicts and I want to go to that dark place, which is like, you know, we're, we're back there. Oh my God. Like I want to just total, like, just go there. And, uh, and I just have to remember, you know, it's normal to have conflict in relationships, you know. Look at the card. Look at the card. It's okay. The card is there. And we talk through it, and it, oh, it's excruciatingly painful because my son is, my, he's so not like me. He's introverted. He, um, I guess he's like me in the sense that he's analytical. Um, and, uh, you know, but to sit and talk and let him just tell me all the crappy things that he thinks about me um, and know that he can be super crappy too, but not say it because he needs to be heard because I didn't listen to him, you know, and just learn how to sit in that discomfort. I was telling someone that the other day that I think a lot of recovery even though there is that aspect of happy, joyous, and free, a lot of recovery for me is learning how to sit in the discomfort. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to die. It's going to be okay. So that was my, um, and is my living amend uh, to my son. I had to make uh, a verbal amend to my brother and my sister-in-law for, um, she set me up with a friend of hers and, didn't like the way that I ended it and um, it cost me about six and a half years with my nieces and nephews and my brother and my sister-in-law and I had to make amends for that and I did it in time to see my niece get married and my little niece Molly (laughs) who I named my dog after um, was 16 so I missed like six years of her adolescence and that was so painful, um, but that is the consequence of sex addiction that we destroy. I destroyed relationships, and I can only account for my part in them. Um, and I got a nice card back from her, you know, that um, she knew how hard I worked on myself, and she had made mistakes too, and, um, and we resumed that relationship. Um, And I think one of the other uh, perks of SA recovery, um, because I do believe that it is an intimacy disorder ultimately that has just different manifestations, um, is um, being able to show up for people emotionally. Um, So my father was diagnosed with cancer about five years ago. um, And um, as I said, he had had an affair and um, it was very, very um, harmful to my family, but I had maintained a relationship with him and did my work on the steps and really tried to be a good daughter to him. Um, and um, so by the time he was dying, I was really the only one who was in relationship with him out of all five of us. Um, and I was able to, to be there with him um, through that experience and in hospice. Um, and my stepmother, who was not the person I wanted to come into my life, but was in my life, regardless of my hopes um, or desires, um, I tried to be a good relation to her, and she was a good grandmother to my son. 
Um, and um, after my father died, she said that, uh, and we were not close or anything, but um, but we were geographically close, so we did spend time together. Um, and she said that she was grateful that she had known me. Um, and that was like huge. Like this was, you know, a person who couldn't even give hugs. You know, she would extend her hand to my four-year-old son. Good to see you. <laughs> Like, hey, <laughs> it's another one of those dichotomies in my family, right? I probably should have said it's like we're very, very affectionate and very unavailable. <laughs> uh, so that was a that was I'm I'm just grateful that I had gotten to this program in time to you know, be able to extend myself in that way uh, to my father and my stepmom. Um, you know, as far as like the other relationships in my life uh, with my siblings, I learned how to not be the youngest kid anymore, <laughs> you know, and that lost child and learn how to like be an adult, you know, uh, be just one of my many siblings um, and not be dependent on them to take care of me. Um, and, um, and that's, that's been great. My sister really didn't talk to me, um, while she was raising her kids because my family is chaos. It's chaos. And she had enough chaos in her own, own home. And so I had to, um, rebuild that relationship. And I did it by, um, you know, just going up to see her every summer and just being a good aunt. Just being a good aunt. Like they play water polo and I, could give a crap about water polo, you know, I'm not really uh, a sports-minded person, like I want to go and talk about like Huck Finn, you know, or poetry or something, I'm good, but um, and I just sit at those water polo matches, and I just listen to all the water polo talk and all the craziness that goes on with these parents, and I just listen, and I'm just like, I am in there, like I am a part of that family, and I love them. I love them. They have been so generous to me. So they started doing the things that I resentfully wanted them to do when I was, you know, playing that role of you owe me something, you know, um, which is, you know, they invite me to go skiing and they want me there at holidays and um, they just make themselves available to me. I got to see my nephew who um, is in the Naval Academy. I got to see him inducted. That was freaking amazing, like the pageantry and everything. And if I hadn't healed these relationships, like, you know, I wouldn't be able to be there with these kids, you know, and it's just, it's just super cool. Um, as far as my friendships, you know, I am still learning, as I said, how to be friends with people without being overly dependent or dismissive. Like finding that balance between like, you know, like sucking the life out of people and just being like, you're dead to me, you know, is really uh, the trick. And um, as far as dating goes, um, I think it's important to mention this as part of my story. It's been incremental success, you know. Um, I thought that this program was going to be like my other program where I'd stop drinking and I would never want to drink again, you know. And so when I got into my first dating relationship and wanted to have like sex right away, I was like, oh my God, 
what's happened? What am I doing wrong? Um, but I didn't understand like what all the women were telling me, which is that I needed all this support in with me in this dating thing. We have this great network of support in um, Orlando. Um, I didn't, I didn't utilize it to its fullest um, because I just didn't know. I'm an adult. <laughs> need you to tell me when I can go out and when I can't go out. My God, I own a home. <laughs> I have a career. I am respected in my field. And you're telling me I can't see someone more than once a week? Are you crazy? Don't you have anything better? To, why are you trying to destroy my life? <laughs> Turns out they were right. They had a point. I am such the addict that it's like I just lose my mind. I lose my mind at the prospect of finding that relationship, you know, that I have built up in my head. And if they don't meet it, I will fabricate it. And then there's that part of me that knows it's a fabrication, so I have to seal the deal. And that's where the sex comes in. And because I'm a prude, so here's the whole childhood, right? It's all coming together. And because I'm a prude, I can't get out of the relationship because we've had sex. That's where all that comes back. Like all those pieces come back. And now I'm stuck and now I want to kill myself because I don't know how to get out. I still have dreams to this day that I'm remarrying my ex-husband. And I'm yelling in the background going, No! Don't do it! Don't! Because I know that addict lives within me. That addict is still there. Um, so it's been incremental. I need that time between dates to get my center back. Right? To realize where my grounding is. And the more that I invest in my relationship with God, the more that I learn um, that it's from God that I am whole, that I am loved, that I am protected, that I am cared for, the better chance I'll have of being in relationship with anyone. Um, I think my journey has been in part, this incremental progress in dating has been in part about me learning compassion. Because if you remember that militant kid with the big book under her arm, right, telling everybody what to do, I don't get to do that anymore because I have had my ass kicked, right? I, I got nothing on this addiction, nothing. It is just waiting there. Um, and what I have to do then is work this program to the best of my ability and continue to enlarge my spiritual life so that my God is bigger than anyone who comes into my life that I want to attach to and lose my being. So I'm going to wrap up with this little piece um, that's been such a profound experience for me because I think my journey in this world is spiritual and I think that my journey in recovery is about compassion and love and forgiveness um, and because my exterior was so hard and protected 
um, that the experiences in my life are all about trying to break that down. I just get that out of the way so I can be, I don't know, the person God intended, my true self, whatever you want to call it, but a kind, decent, compassionate, loving human being who sees other people, who actually sees you, who doesn't just use you or judge you, criticize you, or tell a story about you. Um, I'm thinking that maybe this experience with my mother is part of that. But I'm not quite there. My mother was diagnosed with um, dementia um, last year, and it's not the cute kind. You know, it's the paranoid, angry mother of my childhood. So I did all this work on my dad and put him to rest, found peace and forgiveness. And now it's mom. And I did a lot of work on mom and then she got this diagnosis and that work is really being put to the test and I'm, even though she's in a home, I'm her primary caregiver, her POA and her healthcare surrogate and um, even though I know that this relationship is opening me up more to compassion, it is a constant struggle for me to not snap the door shut, right, and go right back to that person that I was, which is when she raises her finger at me in that little wheelchair, you know, I just want to be like, oh no, not today, sister. You know, um, oh, you want out of here? Try and walk. <laughs> See how that goes. But instead, I just have to be like, mom, you're being mean, so I'm going to go. I'll see you later. She says to me, grow up. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I'm paying a lot of money to grow up. <laughs> but you know, um, like she's my mom. She's my mom. I love her. That's the truth. She was a bitch. <laughs> and she still can be. But I know she loves me. And she did the best that she could. <laughs> I do know that. I do. So I'm going to do the best that I can to show up for her and my family as a daughter, a sister, a mother, sober um, and abstinent. Um, and I know there's going to be a time, and it's not going to be that far off. She's not even going to know who I am. She's not even going to know who I am. And there's going to be a time that I'm going to have to face my maker, right? And wonder if I did, at that point, the best that I could. So I'm trying, and it's not perfect. Um, but I know that um, this program has enabled me to glimpse the happy, joyous, and free, to have the types of relationships that I've wanted where I can actually stay in the discomfort. Um, and it's a result of 
working these steps, um, sponsoring other people. Let me tell you something. I have this sponsee who's 25. She challenges me more than any other human being on the planet. She will not go away. She just keeps coming back. She is such a challenge, but such a delight. Such a delight. Um, and this relationship, this intimacy that we have in this program, this connection that we have, is no joke. What I've been searching for my whole life. That paradox between wanting so desperately for you not to see me and you wanting so desperately to be seen um, is something that I have actually been able to experience because of this program and I'm so grateful I'm so grateful that whatever I did at the convention um, enabled me to get here so that I can have more connections with you guys and I heard, hope that you heard something that was meaningful for you. So I thank you for this opportunity.